Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is October 21st. That means it's a Saturday, another beautiful day, a little overcast, but leaves are just beautiful out. So yeah, no complaints in the weather department. I wanted to start, well, we we got a lot to talk about today. I want to talk about good news in Poland. It looks like a centrist coalition has potentially stopped the one of the most dangerous parties in Europe, and it was trying to erode Poland's institutions and buddy-buddy up with Viktor Orban and Putin. So good news there. I also want to talk about the Qatar conundrum that the West is facing now that Qatar seems so attached to the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, other organizations like that. I also want to get into the idea of what the Senator Medendez chaos tells us about the rise of spycraft regimes. And what I mean by that is smaller, maybe middle-sized countries from the global south that are using basically incentives to get spies to do their dirty work for them and how it's a growing threat to countries like the United States. So we'll we'll get into all that. But first and foremost, I want to, well, first I want to say that I watched a really good documentary last night on HBO or Max Kind of like X, I refuse to call Max Max. I, I like to call it HBO still. But anyways, the movie is called The Insurrectionist Next Door. It is directed by Alexandra Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, who I saw on Bill Maher and I was like, oh, I should maybe check this out. So I did. It's a really interesting documentary. She goes around interviewing a wide range of people involved in January 6th, people that have been either charged or are waiting their trial for insurrection charges or assaulting officers or whatnot. Basically, she interviews the people who did the the storming of the Capitol, the average people that showed up and ended up getting caught into it. And it's really interesting. There's something kind of tragic and depressing about it that doesn't make you totally feel bad for some of these people, but you feel pity for sure. And actually, sometimes you do feel bad for the people. But, you know, It's an interesting look into how these people know what they did was wrong. They talk about how they know this was mob violence and order was just lost and they regret doing it. But then they never put blame on Trump. They still believe the election is stolen and they say they would vote for Trump and do it all over again. And I think the point of it is that, you know, there's a lot of people in this country that are not going to just become Democrats overnight. They will always be conservatives. And we have to learn that these are our average citizens. We have to live together and... Yeah, it's just a really interesting one because there's there's a lot there's like a gay couple that stormed the Capitol. There's a guy who went with his sister who actually voted for Biden and ended up storming the Capitol. There's a there's a girl from Missouri who went with her uncle and got dragged into it kind of and got in trouble, started drinking and then got a DUI after it. I mean, just a really interesting range of people. And I think I think it really shows to me that there is a lot of pain and suffering and loss and purposelessness that kind of leads a lot of these people to find something better than them, join the Trump movement and fight for him. And, you know, we talk so much about race in this country, and I think the left mainly focuses on everything through that intersectional, mainly focusing on race dynamic. But in a sense, this documentary, I think, really showed me that class is as big of an issue, if not a bigger issue in a lot of ways. So definitely check it out. I won't spoil anything else, but there's some really fascinating interviews and you know, it, it, it takes some guts for her to go into some of these places, considering some of the people that stormed the Capitol literally wanted to, like, hurt her mother. You know what I mean? So, interesting, checking out the insurrectionist next door. I'm going to start, though, moving on. This is, I'm not going to really talk about this too much, but it's a clip earlier this week of Jesse Waters. This is the opposite of a palate cleanser. 
It shows just how awful Fox News host Jesse Waters is. This is him basically saying that Hamas and Palestinians are always the same and he doesn't care about the Palestinian cause. And it's it shows that he is probably one of the stupidest people on TV, but also just one of the most toxic and mean and almost evil. So I'm going to play this just because this is this is probably the most watched network on TV and they have hosts like this. I don't think we can have a Palestinian state at this point. I've had it with the Palestinians. I've given up on the Palestinians. If I was in Israel, I wouldn't be talking about a Palestinian state right now. I don't think Joe Biden should be talking about a Palestinian state right now. And I don't like how people tried to differentiate between the Palestinians and Hamas. To me, I see people with guns. That's Hamas. The people without the guns are the Palestinians. They believe the same thing. The Palestinians hire Hamas to run their government. You pull them, they all love killing Jews. It's in their charter. They say they believe in suicide bombings. Every time a Palestinian refugee goes to another country, it doesn't work out so well for the other country and for those Palestinians. No one wants them. You don't see Egypt opening up their doors. You don't see Jordan opening up. You don't see the Saudis. Why don't they want the Palestinians, Dana? I think we all know why they don't want the Palestinians, and it's not working out having these Palestinians and Hamas right next door to the Israelis. Oh, man, I could probably do a whole, like, 20, 30-minute episode just breaking this down. I'm not going to because I, I want to preserve whatever sanity I have left, but what I will just say is let me just spout out that is toxic, it's divisive, it's just incorrect, falsehoods, it's going to lead to even more polarization, escalation of violence, it's it's just maybe a little bit racist too, basically just kind of putting a whole group into one. It's also just like kind of troubling when he's like, I don't care about the Palestinians, I don't want there to be a state. I, yeah, just really horrible take. Like there's been a lot of horrible takes out there on this whole conflict so far. I've covered it, but this one might be one of the worst, most divisive, toxic, and just will lead to just less productive conversations and more polarization. And I mean, I, can't, I guess we can't be surprised. I mean, Jesse Waters looks like a low-rent car salesman and acts like a first-rate a-hole. So not at all surprising, but this, this guy might be one of the dumbest hosts on Fox News, but also one of the most dangerous. I'm going to move on. I don't want to waste any more breath on that, but... That just shows you where the Fox News rhetoric can go. And they, and they don't get it, get any pushback. The, the viewers like it. I mean, Jesse Waters' numbers, not as good as Tucker, but since he took that Tucker spot, I mean, he's doing okay. So lovely, isn't it? All right, well, moving on. The first thing I want to talk about, I think we're going to start with some good news and then just get more depressing. Why don't we do that? <laughs> um, I want to talk about some good news in Poland. So Poland had an election, I think, that wrapped up on the 15th, and they were still counting votes over the last couple days. And as I'm sure people are aware, if you've listened to this podcast, at least Donald Tusk's party was thrown out, I want to say in like 2014, 2015. And this was because you had the rise of kind of a new party called the Law and Justice Party. They came to power, yeah, in 2015, pretty much railing against corruption, kind of a right wing Christian conservative party, a lot like Viktor Orban's Fidates party in Hungary. And pretty much since then, they have followed what I call the illiberal European model, which is the Viktor Orban model as well. It's basically the idea of using elections to get into power, and then once you're in power, basically melding the institutions to keep you in power and creating kind of a one-party rule through the guise of democracy. And so much like in Hungary, the Law and Justice Party has taken control of 
the Supreme Court. Um, they've kind of put their hands out through state media, state-owned companies. So it's really becoming less and less of a capitalist society, but also not letting the judiciary be independent, um, controlling who is elected to the judiciary, keeping the legislation and the legislative branch quite under power. And so the Law and Justice Party has ruled Poland for quite some time under under President Duda. And yeah, Poland has done some decent things, I think, during the war in Ukraine so far. But internally, the country has become pretty hostile to immigrants, hostile to LGBTQ plus rights, all, all the stuff you see in, in Hungary. Also kind of playing coy with Putin, not quite as much just because of Poland's pretty troubled past with Russia, but not a good party. So that takes us to now where we actually saw a really promising election happen where turnout reached 74% which is actually higher even than in the election in 1989 that brought an end to communism. So that's Poland's highest rate ever. And this election probably was also Poland's most important. Um, The reason why they say it was most important was because this might have been, there's a lot of advocates and democracy watchdogs in Europe that said this was probably the last chance to stop um, the Law and Justice Party from seizing total control of the courts, filling the state with apparatchiks, and just wrecking Poland's standing Poland's been in a row with the EU for a long time. And so a year or two more, and I think Poland could have been screwed for quite some time. So the thing is, the Law and Justice Party did take first place still in this election. But the catch is that it usually would get like 40 to 45 to 50 percent. In 2019, it got about 44 percent of the vote. But in this one, it took 35.4 percent of the vote, which is a huge, huge change. And what that means is that we actually saw an opposition alliance of centrist parties, center-left, center-right, come together probably to form enough to have the majority coalition once they officially form it. So some of the results were there's the centrist civic coalition that got 30.7%, so almost the same as Law and Justice. Then you had another centrist party called Third Way. It got 14.4%. Then you have Luvica, an alliance of leftists and social democrats, got almost 9%. And actually, the, the hard right Confederation Party did worse, getting only 7%. So if you just do rough math here, the that kind of centrist coalition I'm talking about, you, you get up to almost 50, yeah, a little bit over 50% of the vote. So they would have more than the far right and the law and justice. So that is good news. Basically, so you have um, KO, Third Way, and Luvica, which have now promised to govern together. And they will have a majority of 248 out of the 460 seats in the lower house of parliament. The Law and Justice Party will just have 194. So this is a this is good news in a lot of ways. Um, Ann Applebaum in the Atlantic has a great piece that I recommend people read. It just discusses how Poland is an example that authoritarian or autocratic regimes don't always have to win if people get out there and vote and don't lose hope in it. It's possible. But this election is also kind of impressive because the Law and Justice Party really, I mean, as I said earlier, they mainly have controlled state media and state-owned companies, and they used their control over different sectors to basically just gaslight the whole population and blitz the country with propaganda. And there's, there's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is kind of a democratic watchdog. And it said that the propaganda that the Law and Justice Party was putting out before this election had a clear advantage given to the Law and Justice Party. So the fact that it didn't 
actually end up winning the majority or, or, or doing as well as usual is actually a pretty fascinating sign. And I guess on a side note, it tells me that there's, I think, a lot of people out there that still value democracy and freedom and liberal society and equality and stuff. And I guess that's kind of promising. And now Donald Tusk will be probably the leader of the coalition again. And the, the problem here, though, is it might take a while and they still have a long road ahead. So I guess this isn't all happy. So you have Andrej uh, Duda, who is the president from the Law and Justice Party, and he's probably going to delay the transition until mid-December being petty. These guys always seem to be petty, but really sore losers. But I guess that's what makes an autocrat is you don't really want to lose, right? So anyways, basically this coalition, their goal and what they're going to need to do is they need to pretty much undo the Law and Justice Party's efforts to make Poland just a carbon copy of Viktor Orban's Hungary. And that will be hard because they're going to have to reestablish an independent judiciary and that's going to be difficult just because it's become so polarized and politicized and controlled by the, the Law and Justice Party. They will also need legislation, which Duda could veto at the time. That's going to be difficult. They also need to decouple the state from controlling media and companies. They'll have to remove cronies that the Law and Justice Party installed. And this could lead to other forms of cronyism, more corruption. It could backfire. Like, it's going to be very difficult, long road ahead. I don't think Poland's out of the woods yet, but this is a great first step. We'll have to keep following it. And I think it's a sign that you can reverse the damage of a liberalism if you get the people out and people need to vote. Moving on, the the main thing I also want to talk about that I guess will probably take up the main chunk of this episode. We'll see. As you guys know, I tend to go on tangents sometimes, but I want to talk about Qatar and just its relationship with the West and its support of terrorists. I don't know. Let's give a little background. Sovereign country located in the Middle East on the Qatari Peninsula, northeastern coast of the Arabian Peninsula, one of the Gulf states member of the Gulf Cooperation Council, member of OPEC, obviously, a lot of oil there. And it's also a member of the UN. Um, Very high-income economy, some of the world's highest per capita income, sixth highest human development index, major exporter of liquefied natural gas, and the world's third largest natural gas reserves. So, I mean, I'm no genius or expert on this, but I would assume maybe lots of gas reserves might be linked to highest per capita income. The country's been ruled by the Altani family since like 1820, if I have the number, 1825 actually. The current emir, Tamin bin Hamad Altani, um, I'm probably butch- butchered that, so I apologize. He ascended to the throne in 2013, and as people I'm sure are aware, Qatar not exactly known for its human rights record, um, treatment of migrant workers. They do that thing where they bring in migrants, kind of erase their passport or citizenship documents keep them there, pay them low wages, violate a lot of human rights we have in the West. A lot of people die. I don't want to call it slave labor, but it's closer to that than um, workers' rights, I would say. And about a year ago, FIFA World Cup was coming to Qatar, and I did quite a, quite a few episodes, if I recall correctly, criticizing FIFA and the Qatari government. They were banning booze at the games. Look, if you're going to the World Cup, you should be allowed to drink also, they had to download this app on their phone. There were, there were reports of surveillance, human rights issues. I don't know. It, just, it was just a big mess. But you can go back and listen to those if you would like. Today, I want to talk about Qatar's kind of complicated, or not even complicated, just kind of blatantly bad relationship 
with some of the worst terror groups in the region, including Al-Qaeda, the, the Syrian Al-Qaeda branch, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, also pretty close ties with the Taliban when no one else was. I don't want... I, I don't want to say they were actually like friends with the Taliban, but it was more of a diplomatic relationship. And it's actually kind of interesting because some would say that Qatar's alliance or relationship with Islamic groups, you know, such as the Taliban, Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood, has actually at times been useful because it's been a diplomatic broker and a useful one for the United States. Um, the United States has actually done some good things in um, resolving tensions in the Middle East with the help of Qatar. So not all of it's bad, but with everything happening right now between Israel, Hamas, Gaza over the last few weeks, it seems like those ties are becoming more of a liability. And a lot of people are now really shining the light on Qatar after the country's statements after the October 7th attacks that were not great. Um, Al Jazeera, huge publication, has been kind of at the forefront of a lot of propaganda. The country has been protecting some of Hamas's leaders stuff like that. And so as Hamas, you know, used to be kind of downplayed as less extreme than groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, now it seems like a lot of the West is pretty much saying Hamas is as bad as ISIS and Qatar needs to be somewhat held accountable or at least challenged or questioned for why the country is still funding it and seems to be somewhat defending it. And we'll, we'll get into that. But before we get into the current events and why I think the West is going to face kind of a Qatar conundrum, we should get into some of Qatar's recent connections that I think were beneficial to the United States, maybe. Um, and it's even though the country's not really great by any means. And I was recently reading about how the Qatari government had a fairly close diplomatic relationship with the Taliban for decades. And it actually was one of the only um, Arabic countries at the time that allowed the militant group to establish an office in Doha, which is the capital of Qatar. And from my understanding... This was actually pretty useful and good to the United States because basically Qatar served as a middleman between the United States and the Taliban. It also allowed the U.S. to be somewhat in the loop, and it provided the U.S. with a channel for negotiations with the group. Middle Eastern experts that I've read and followed also point out that this relationship helped facilitate the agreement that led to the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. That obviously was concluded, or at least the, the agreements were set under Trump, which Trump doesn't like to talk about now, and then obviously carried out by Joe Biden. Whether you think that was good or bad, I think pulling out of Afghanistan was probably net good. We'll see. I think in the short term, horrible, long term, good. But that's not the point here is that Qatar was kind of the broker, the middleman between the US and the Taliban with this deal. And I personally think it's good that we're able to work with the, uh, with the Qatari government and the Taliban. I think both actors do not actually like doing business with us, but, you know, we've made the relationship work more on the Qatari side. I think the Taliban can burn, but yeah, that's a whole other thing too. So I think also it should be included that Qatar in theory can be helpful to Europe, less so than I was hoping because we've seen a lot of the Gulf states kind of work with Putin more than I was hoping. But, you know, large gas supplies, huge reserves, a lot of people were hoping that Qatar could maybe help Europe's energy markets amid Russia's war in Ukraine. They have somewhat, like Qatar has somewhat helped, but again, OPEC hasn't been as great as I was hoping during all of this. But also, going further in a sense, I think the United States sees Qatar obviously as an imperfect actor, as a flawed state that funds terrorism, but it's also a pragmatic broker in other ways, too. And it's actually been a pragmatic broker with Israel, too, which is kind of fascinating considering 
what they've, you know, the, the relationships they've established with Hamas. I should note this was more in the 90s and early 2000s, but Qatar was one of the only countries a while back that was willing to at least do some trade with Israel. Um, I think that before the Abraham Accords, which I've talked about, right, normalized relations with Israel and other Arab countries, I don't think the Abraham Accords were great by any means, not how Jared Kushner sells them. We, there's no Middle Eastern peace that Trump keeps talking about. But basically before the Abraham Accords, the only real trade deal was, or I don't want to say trade deal, but the only real normalization of trade was happening between Israel and Qatar, which is kind of surprising, honestly. And basically the main Israeli diplomatic presence in the Gulf region was an office for trade and economic relations that was happening in Doha. And this operated for several years in the late 1990s, I think after the second intifada and the rise of Hamas and more violence in the region, then you see trade not, not as functional between the two countries. Right now, not as good as well, obviously, because of Qatar's connections with Hamas now. But interesting to see that I think the Qataris, in a sense, are kind of willing to put their money all throughout the region, and they're less picky about who they work with, which is good and bad. <laughs> and before getting into Israel and Hamas, Painting a bigger picture of why Qatar is problematic, though, over the last decade or two. <laughs> it's been highly involved in encouraging and funding extremist groups in the Syrian civil war. And not good ones, either. It's interesting because it was one of the largest backers of the rebellion against Bashar al-Assad, right? And we all know that Bashar al-Assad is not, um, not a great guy. Horrible guy. Genocidal maniac. And so... Qatar, in theory, was on the right side of this issue, but it's faced criticism, and I think rightfully so, from human rights people, the United States, a lot of the West, the United Nations, because it's propped up some of the worst groups that were against Assad, such as Al-Qaeda, or the, uh, the, uh, the Al-Qaeda branch in Syria that was involved with, you know, the killing of innocent people, killing journalists, killing Americans, jihadi-type attacks, so not great. And there's probably also links to ISIS, but those are a little bit a little bit less easy to see. Like Al-Qaeda, the Syrian Al-Qaeda branch seems to be the most connected to Qatar, which is not great. Also, there's an article from about a year ago from the Associated Press. It does a good job. It's a good piece that talks about Qatar facing a lot of U.S. investigations and accusations and lawsuits of funding terror and how it led to the death of American citizens. It's usually hard for an American court to try an international actor, a foreign country, but I guess the arguments were basically that there were Americans hurting this with, with funds connected to American firms and other Western firms. Complicated, I'm not a lawyer, but that's, that's my gist of what, what it is. And so basically, the AP writes here in quotes, Qatar, a key U.S. ally in the Persian Gulf, is facing increased scrutiny over its alleged financial ties to terrorism in a lawsuit from relatives of a slain American journalist and a separate federal investigation into a member of the country's royal family. So the first one that it gets into is the family of Stephen Sadaloff. Um, and there was a, lawsuit, a federal lawsuit that talked about how prominent Qatari financial institutions wired about $800,000 to an Islamist state judge who ordered the murder of Sotloff and another American journalist, James Foley. The two were actually beheaded in Syria in 2014 by radical groups like Al-Qaeda and other factions in the region on the kind of anti-Assad side of the Syrian civil war. And they know this happened because the killings were filmed and published in propaganda videos. 
And it does seem like there were ties between Qatar and funding these groups that killed journalists. And so again, I never like to see journalists dying. I think journalism is important to covering some of the worst conflicts we see. And so, yeah, I think they should be held accountable for this. Absolutely. Also, the article talks about how, in another case, completely separate, federal prosecutors had been investigating ties between terror groups and Khalid bin Hamad al-Tani, who is the half-brother of Qatar's ruling emir. So literally like one of the top guys in the country. And there was a jury investigation in the Southern District of New York, busy place, and it focused into basically Saudi money, not Saudi, she's um, Qatari money, um, giving supplies to al-Nasra, which is al-Qaeda's branch in Syria. And there's, I mean, just go online and type in the Qatar connection with, like, with radical groups in Syria, Egypt, obviously Hamas. There's lots. This is just giving you one example here because I don't have all day to break it down and get you this big net, but or web, I guess you could say, of all this happening. But yes, there is clearly Qatari crumbs all throughout the more radical Islamist groups in the region. So I give these examples because, again, another actor that is beneficial to the United States for strategic reasons, one of our biggest bases that is actually sovereign U.S. territory, I guess you could say, is in Qatar. Um, I'll get to that at the end. But you know, we have a connection with them for oil and defense reasons mainly. And of course, Qatar has contradictory motives and goals in the regions that really do not align with ours. But again, we, it's a tough one because it's an unstable region. They're willing to work with us. Diplomacy does involve creating flawed but necessary relations with countries that you don't agree with. I think in the past, that's easier to be doing. But now I think with the Hamas attacks, it's it's looking like, no, this is a country that is actually helping destroy one of our other allies, Israel. So it's really tough. But um, in the Atlantic, Hussein Abis, um, a great writer on these topics, uh, he covers a lot of Middle Eastern affairs for the Atlantic. He has a good article that discusses in quotes here how Doha has provided a home for much of Hamas's exiled political bureau, including its de facto leader, Ismail Haneya. Qatar has also been a major underwriter of Gaza's economy ever since Hamas seized control of the area in 2007. Yeah, any um, press conferences or videos you've seen of Hamas's de facto leader, this Haneya guy, usually coming out of Qatar. So that, that would be like after 9-11, bin Laden goes to, I, I mean, goes, goes to Qatar. And they pretty much don't lock him up or send him to us and allow him to do press conferences and put out videos there without any repercussions, right? And it's also interesting because Qatar actually, I guess you could say, has kind of been propping up the state of Gaza. Obviously, Hamas is running an administrative state kind of in Gaza. I mean, there are people that are trying, I mean, there are, there are bureaucrats, kind of, in Gaza, right? Hamas party, the single party totalitarian terrorist regime, but there are administrative entities in Gaza, more or less, not really good at what they do, but they do exist. And so I say that because interestingly, the US and Israel have given consent to Qatar to kind of bankroll Gaza. What I mean is that Qatar has contributed hundreds of millions of dollars, pretty much every year, to the enclave and this has been for administration, probably for Hamas and weapons to defeat Israel, of course, because Hamas is linked with the state of Gaza at this point. But also some of this has been humanitarian aid, foods, and you know cross-border coordination with Egypt, who is obviously another bad actor in my opinion. That's, that's a whole other story. But yeah, it is interesting that 
yeah, Qatar is has money not just going to Hamas, but also just to Gaza as an enclave. I think the big issue, though, and the one that Qatar is probably facing, because a lot of the, the coverage, at least in Western media around Qatar, has not been great over the last few weeks, and rightfully so. And I think the problem Qatar faces is that it's too engaged and directly connected to a lot of these proxies, like I've talked about in Syria, right? And yeah, there's other countries like Turkey, Saudi Arabia that also have proxies, Iran, but they don't do it quite so blatantly. And I think Qatar has done it so directly that it's really hard to separate them just giving money to Hamas to them actually sympathizing and aiding Hamas. And like after the Arab Spring, also, it tried to help bolster the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Eventually, that didn't work out. It leads to the military coup that puts el-Sisi into power now. Now it's a military dictatorship, basically. And he's now locking up anyone with ties or even presumptive ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's a pretty dangerous security authoritarian state, and that's not good either. The government's really cracking down on free speech, so that didn't work. And Qatar is really linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is kind of toxic in a lot of a lot of the world. And also, as I mentioned, linked and involved with Hamas, which is now a problem because a lot of the West is really seeing Hamas as something equivalent to Al-Qaeda and ISIS. The Atlantic article I was talking about earlier uh, notes here in quotes, Doha will again rely on this indispensability to avoid accountability. But after Hamas's horrifying killing spree in southern Israel, that may not be enough. And the, the reason why they say that is because after the awful attacks, after October 7th, Doha put out an official statement. And it, like unfortunately a lot of people I've seen in the United States, a lot of those, you know, socialists of America groups and college campus protesters and Twitter warriors, basically... Doha put out a statement blaming the massacre solely on Israel, didn't really mention anything about Hamas, and uh, Hussein Abish in the Atlantic again writes here in quotes, for too long, Doha has danced between its Islamist allies and its Western and Arab partners. The music just stopped. I think that's true. I, I really do think that's true. And I hope there's a little more skepticism in the West towards Al Jazeera I understand Al Jazeera, even though it's from Qatar, has, you know, Western offices. The, the, the media kind of changes between where it's coming from. Totally understand that. But I used to look at Al Jazeera more before I did find out the, the financing. Because there's a contradiction here is that it's, you know, it's a Qatari outlet. And they're funding some of the groups that are trying to fight a propaganda war, like Hamas. And so the contradictions there make it so I can't really trust Al Jazeera and Al Jazeera has been kind of at the forefront of this as, um, I don't want to say a defender of Hamas, but trying to whitewash some of it and do more of a both sides thing. And so Al Jazeera, I think, should come under more criticism as well. But anyways, the last thing I'll say here is that all of this is bad, and I think Qatar needs to be held accountable here. But that being said, I think the U.S. kind of needs Qatar. Again, I talked about that base, the Al-Adid Al base, um, Qatar financed the building of it, lar largely funds the maintenance of it. And the interesting thing is that it's actually allowed the U.S. to operate the facility kind of under de facto extraterritorial jurisdiction. From my understanding, that would be kind of like Guantanamo Bay, in a sense, different. Obviously, this isn't a prison, but kind of that same thing. Like, basically, al is like a sovereign American territory, and it's not a Qatari territory, even though Qatar helps fund it and keep it maintained. So... 
yeah, the Defense Department sees this as a very important strategic asset, vital for U.S. interests. And so we do kind of have to play ball with Qatar at the end of the day. Last thing I want to talk about, there's been a lot of spy stuff going on. About a month ago, I did an episode talking about how Russian spies were getting busted from Sweden to the United States to Slovenia. They were finding these kind of secondary or even tertiary spies, not from Russian origin, but locals that got you know brought into it and were busted doing work for Putin and other organizations. And so then a few weeks ago, I did an episode about the problems of Senator Bob Menendez. And I talk about more than just the gold bars and the corruption. And then, you know, his wife's, I guess, potential DUI, where I think she killed someone in the accident, if I don't recall, but then they never tested her. Weird stuff, shady stuff. But I did that episode where I explained why he is more than just corrupt. He's a national security threat. And I outlined that, at best, (laughs) he is an Egyptian asset, and at worst, a spy. And I still believe that is definitely the case. And we're seeing this thing, I don't want to call them, like, less important countries, but I guess you could say, like, second or third rate countries, smaller countries, maybe is a better way to put it. Countries that are not as big, robust, not giant economic powerhouses, we're seeing a lot of these countries try to find different ways to get back at us, get back at bigger countries. And I think the Bob Menendez story is just the tip of the iceberg for other ones we're seeing. And what I mean here is that I think this is an important reminder to the United States that we should not blow off or underestimate the intelligence capabilities of smaller countries. Now, Egypt's not like a tiny country, but it's not like a China or a United States or a Brazil or a Russia. It's a smaller country, but it was able to get to one of the most powerful people in the U.S. Senate and did quite a good job of it. And in a sense, I think sometimes these smaller countries are becoming more dangerous because they don't have the brute force and they don't have the ability to like wage a giant war on us or anything. So they're resorting to like cyber attacks and more creative ways to, to divide and conquer and to get inside of our countries and get inside of our intelligence and all of that stuff. And I think all of this can kind of be related to a bigger issue in which small countries are fighting us in different ways. I mean, we, I talked about it yesterday with how Hamas is trying to respond to the IFD. Right or the, or the IDF, sorry, and to other, you know, is, is Israeli technology and better weapons and all this stuff. And so David Gioe is, I hope I pronounced that correctly, pronouncing it how it's spelled. David Gioe is a British uh, Academy Global Professor at King's College, um, Department of War Studies in London. And he's also a history fellow for the Army Cyber Institute at the U.S. Military Academy. And he has a really good piece I was reading yesterday and uh, and this morning. It was a long piece. Um, and it's called The Rise of the New Spycraft Regimes. And it's a really good piece. And I thought it'd be worth kind of talking about it in relation to what I've been talking about, how spying's growing again and Bob Menendez and all of that. So basically, I, I think before I get into the piece, we have to remember that we think of global, global <laughs> espionage as being dominated by countries like Russia and China, France, the United States, Britain, those type of countries. But recently, as I've been talking about, we're seeing places like Egypt get into the uh, espionage thing. And so David Gioe calls countries like Egypt getting Bob Menendez, he calls countries like these middle powers, ones that he says are usually in the global south, not only in the west, but also they're trying to get new levels of ambition via 
alternative methods. And basically, he says the ramifications of these activities could rival any major power spy scandal, but the states are smaller, but the stakes are not. The stakes can sometimes be even higher. And so he gives us three examples. Obviously, you guys know the Bob Menendez one. And this one is telling because you have Egypt, which I think would be kind of a middle power or a middle-sized country that infiltrated the highest echelons of the U.S. Senate, right? Bob Menendez, former chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he talks about, you know, last week, and this is actually recent again, federal prosecutors did charge Bob Menendez and his wife with conspiring to have the Senate act as an, senator act as an agent for the Egyptian government bolstering military sales and aid to Egypt and yeah, being an operative for Egypt, which is huge. And um, David Joey writes here in quotes, the evidence suggests that Egypt succeeded in getting a major U.S. official to effectively sell his considerable access and influence in Congress. Now, the second case that I think is interesting, and I didn't know much about this one, is Ethiopia. I guess in late September, the U.S. Justice Department arrested an individual named Abraham Lima and he was an information or IT contractor for the State Department. And they, they arrested him on espionage charges. And David Gioe writes here in the article, in quotes, The charges allege that Lemma, a naturalized U.S. citizen of Ethiopian descent, copied secret and top-secret information from intelligence reports, deleted their classification markings, removed them from the State Department, and then used an encrypted application to transmit classified national defense information to a foreign government official associated with the foreign country's intelligence service. Now, I read a New York Times piece looking into this deeper, and it does seem like he was doing this for the Ethiopian government. And based on what Joey's writing in this foreign policy article, it checks out again as another kind of middle power not, not one of the small world powers, not one of the big ones, but kind of one of these second or third rate actors that are, you know, they're involved in global affairs, but they're not, they're not on the level of a France or a Germany or the United States or a China or a Russia or something like that. And again, interesting example of kind of a middle power being able to get someone working for the upper echelons of the United States government. And kind of worrying again. <laughs> That's a trend you will notice is that I'm kind of concerned about this in a lot of ways. Another example is India, right? And we've we've talked about this on the podcast as well. But but let's think about this issue now in the light of spycraft regimes, right? Of course, India is probably closer to being I guess you could say a first-rate or top power instead of one of these middle powers. But we have to remember that it's usually kind of been under the radar when it comes to intelligence, espionage, all of that stuff. But lately, it's also trying to get into this. Let's remember that in in September, and I did a podcast on this, Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, publicly basically pointed fingers at New Delhi and the Indian External Intelligence Service for that assassination of Hardeeb Singh Nijar, who is that Sikh leader who was in exile in Canada. And A lot of articles have come out about that linking the research and analysis wing, the RAW, to that June assassination of um, Hardeep Singh Nijar, and there probably had to be some infiltration inside of, of Canada to be able to do this. And again, the trend I see here is that, look, China, United States, I guess you could say NATO, China, other countries, I mean, other organizations like that, we were dominant. And so you're seeing these other actors try to find more clandestine ways to get involved. 
And I think that's why the idea of the rise of the spycraft regimes is really interesting. It's kind of a third way in a kind of bipolar world right now. And I, and I find that really fascinating. And I think these examples, if you're a, you know, a United States official, it should worry you because these examples kind of go against the paradigm that big budgets, high technology, lots of money, first world, military prowess are what translate to successful espionage, successful intelligence. And in the past, I remember reading about how Cuba back during the Cold War can actually be an example of this too. Like Cuba, not the richest country under the dictatorship of Fidel Castro, not a very first world technological, technologically advanced country. But Cuban intelligence was actually first rate during the time and actually was able to do a lot of work spying on the United States and uh, some of our allies for the Soviet Union. And I think in this sense, the Soviet, kind of u- the Soviet Union kind of used Cuba as a proxy and did it very successfully. And so I think you could look at the Cuban example to look at this a little bit because like what happened with Cuba, Egypt, for example, India, Ethiopia, apparently, and I would say Russia to an extent too, Pretty much they just need to do their homework, know what they want, and be able to target anyone from a, you know, a U.S. senator to an IT help desk person to basically give them what they want, appeal to them, and get them to serve their aims. And I, I think if you're a Western policymaker, a foreign policy person, a government official, It's probably worrying because I don't really know how you respond to this. I mean, they already do like really heightened clearances and the process to really get some of these jobs can be tough. Maybe different from Bob Menendez. I think he should be, I mean, he should already be out of the Senate. I don't know how he's still there. But anyways, I think there's a sense of arrogance that comes internally from places like the United States where maybe we look down on some of these actors, especially ones in the global South, and just don't think they could be able to compromise us. And so I think Western policymakers just cannot discredit the intelligence capabilities, the ambition of some of these places. We need to take it more seriously. And of course, this this to me is just another example of how the world is in kind of a chaotic state right now. And it's not a good time to do that because, of course, the House of Representatives doesn't even have a speaker. But that's a different story. I mean, I think the idea of the, the rise of spycraft regimes, maybe it's not even the rise, it's the resurgence of spycraft regimes because this has happened in the past and it's a really interesting time to be alive. Anyways, that'll do it. Longer episode today. You can always find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Have a great rest of your Saturday. Adios.